Welcome to the Commune Podcast. This is Jeff Krasnow. Now, many of you may receive my weekly Sunday Commusing article, where I address a breadth of issues from the spiritual to the socio-political. And on occasion, I will also record an audio version of these articles and release it as a bonus episode. So today's recitation is the product of a dinner that I had with my three daughters about race, history, and cancel culture. And yes, Dr. Seuss makes an appearance. If you're interested in receiving my weekly article, sign up at onecommune.com. And if you're not utterly sick of me, you can follow me on Instagram. I've got a lot of videos up there at Jeff Krasno. So without further ado, here is this week's commusing titled, If You Cover It In Sugar, Then It Only Tastes Sweet. I am sitting at the dinner table with my three daughters, ages 11, 13, and 16, comparing harrowing stories of personal embarrassment. And now it's my turn. In college, I DJed a Sunday morning radio program called Moonshine. Hosting this show was a double-edged saber. I enjoyed a certain campus prominence for having my sonorous radio voice resonate through the dormitories. But waking up early on the Christian Sabbath after long Saturday nights trawling Upper West Side watering holes and trudging to the station proved arduous more than once. Still, I cherished the gig. WKCR was predominantly known and respected as a jazz station. Its airwaves, transmitted from atop the World Trade Center, had considerable reach permeating the boroughs and suburbs of New York City. The musical director, Phil Schapp, was a beatnik bebop maven famous for authoring the liner notes of Miles Davis albums. He was gangly tall, had bushy red hair, wore bell-bottoms, and was a walking jazz encyclopedia. Phil always stayed close to the work, excavating the vinyl catacombs, searching for that diamond-in-the-rough alternate take. Phil didn't speak to you as much as he scatted at you turning phrases like West Montgomery turned guitar licks. Needless to say, all of the pimply budding DJs, including myself, considered him an oracle. Moonshine was a two-hour romp in traditional American music. The show typically began with old-timey fiddle tunes strumming its way into Bill Monroe-era bluegrass and crescendoing in the new grass stylings of Bela Fleck and Sam Bush. I was a bluegrass fanatic in my university days and picked my five-string banjo at every available moment, much to the chagrin of long-suffering Skyler. I led a bluegrass outfit cheekily dubbed the Morningside Mountain Boys. The station gave me gas stipend to drive down the Blue Ridge and Great Smoky Mountain ranges to play festivals in Virginia, Tennessee, and North Carolina. Backstage, Armed with my bulky old tape recorder, I did my best Alan Lomax, interviewing folks named J.D. Crow, Earl Scruggs, and Lester Flatt. As a prep school Jewish kid from the Northeast, these explorations through the South were not just ethnomusicological, they were anthropological. It felt like time travel into a very different era and a very different culture. During the week, I would sculpt the show, 
there were vast lockers stacked with LPs, which I would spread out on the carpet like playing cards. From this heap, I would order the set, interspersing excerpts of the interviews I had done on the road. The broadcast booth was old school. There were two turntables, a simple mixing board, a couple of microphones, some outboard gear, and two rotary telephones for call-ins. When you were live on the air, you were mixing the show in real time. And here's a play-by-play. You drop the record onto the platter of the player. The various tracks on a vinyl record are separated by bands of smooth space between the more serrated grooves of the song. You identify the chosen cut, and to the best of your ability, you then raise the arm of the player and set the cartridge down such that the needle would drop right into the smooth area just before the selection. This maneuver required a steady hand, which could be hard to find on an overly caffeinated Sunday morning. Once the needle was in place, you hit the speed button. The record would turn. As soon as you heard the first threads of music in your headphones, you'd press the speed button again, stopping the player, and then lightly with your fingers, pulled the record back counterclockwise. This created a bassy wah-wah sound effect akin to the voice of Charlie Brown's teacher. Once the warble ceased, you knew the record was precisely cued. When you were ready to play it, you sped up the player again, and the song started perfectly. This pattern was repeated throughout the entirety of the show, and... Of course, there was expert banter to be delivered between cuts. Now, this process was not particularly onerous if you were a jazz DJ playing lengthy improvised Chikoria odysseys. The tunes of old-timey music, however, are short in duration. And much of this music has its roots in Ireland as fiddle tunes and jigs. As the Irish settled in Appalachia, the music migrated with them and syncretized with instruments like the banjo, which originally hails from West Africa. These melodies flew by, often in under a minute. And because of the shortness of these tunes, you might find 30 cuts on one side of a 33 LP. Hence, my set lists were populated by dozens and dozens of tracks. And this transformed the queuing process into a game of operation. And this challenge came into stark and nightmarish relief one hazy Sunday. The show began in its typical fashion, high and lonesome, with Peter Rowan singing the eponymous theme song. About 15 minutes in, I queued up a record while Ralph Stanley crooned Little Maggie. The folklore of this music is populated with all types of heroes and villains. John Henry, the steel-driving man, not to be confused with John Hardy, who shot down a man on the West Virginia line. The cut I intended to play next featured Casey Jones, the locomotive engineer, who met an untimely death in a train wreck in 1900. After a short preamble, I unleashed the track. However, the song that played did not involve the railroad. I had cued the wrong track. The tune that started playing had but one set of lyrics. Run, nigger, run. This refrain reprised over and over. Initially, I didn't actually trust my ears, and I frantically fumbled about for the record jacket. All eight station phone lines lit up instantly like a discotheque. With mounting horror, I began jabbing at buttons, trying to stop the record, and frenetically answering irate calls. Listeners were furious. They called me racist and threatened to boycott the station. Finally, I collected myself. I got on the air 
and as best I could apologized, explained the gaff, and tried to salvage the station's reputation. I queued up an instrumental, but before I could even take a breath, the phone lines lit up again. This time, people excoriated me for my contrition, claiming that the music was simply a product of its time. The balance of the broadcast was a blur, and afterwards, I skulked toward the station exit, thinking it might be my last shot of moonshine when Phil walked in the outdoor. I tried to flatten myself into the wall and disappear, but as he breezed by me, he caroled, Music is history. If you cover it up in sugar, then it only tastes sweet. And he cavorted away, mouth-trumpeting a Dizzy Gillespie solo. Phoebe, my eldest, blurted, Oh my God, Dad, if you did that today, you'd be so canceled. Lolly, my cheese in the sandwich, Riley adds, We're going to start calling you Dr. Seuss. Micah, my peapod, is confused and queries, What's wrong with green eggs and ham? In case you missed it, Two weeks ago, the estate of Dr. Seuss decided to stop selling six of his lesser-known books after concluding that there were egregious racial and ethnic stereotypes in the works. This decision made unexpected headlines and prompted cries of cancel culture from prominent conservatives. Like many others, I hadn't given a thought to Dr. Seuss in some years, but now, of course, I was reminiscing fondly about all those nights I put my girls to sleep with one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, and Mr. Brown can moo, and I would drift off too, and I'd wake up with thing one and thing two draped across my chest, and I'd do my best to let them rest, and off to my bed I would quest, thinking my life was so blessed. I literally taught Phoebe to read with Hop on Pop and the seeds of understanding the nefariousness of transnational conglomerates keen to ravage the environment in the name of ceaseless biggering were planted in the Lorax. And what now? Am I supposed to discontinue the publishing of these memories that inform my relationship with my children and their upbringing? I don't think so. But is the fact that I'm questioning the turpitude of Theodore Seuss Geisel a sign of our collective moral maturation, or the cynical manufacturing of a cancel culture crisis. The decision by the Seuss estate to cease publication of these books was not made in response to the petitions of a liberal mob. It's been vaulted into news feeds by conservatives sniffing around for anything redolent of identity politics. Over and again, folks on the right try to sell the country a form of restorative nostalgia that paints a safe, picket-fenced, 50s-esque Christian white portrait of American life. Make America Great Again was originally Ronald Reagan's campaign slogan. 45 merely dusted it off. While this depiction of America whitewashes reality, the leveraging of Seussgate and similar ordeals is potent and insidious, for here I am wool-gathering in the melancholy of my children's Seussian upbringing, and feeling mildly assailed for having to question it. Of course, sorting through the mess of our internal worlds requires discomfort, for the same mess is projected far and wide in our shared reality. It is imperative that we shine a light on our past as represented in art and culture to see where it is infused with both overt and more subtle forms of racism and sexism and all other isms. 
I can treasure the nights spent reading to my daughters while also acknowledging that Seuss, on occasion, resorted to racial stereotypes that are hurtful and have no home in the moral universe. Of course, to spend any time on Horton the Elephant trivializes the real issues. The average net worth of the white American family is $170,000. The average net worth of the black family, $17,000. I have no squabble with the Seuss estate discontinuing a small set of books, but I would take issue with the rewriting of them, even if it reflected evolving social attitudes. James Baldwin famously wrote, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. If we hope to instantiate a society that is more equitable and just, then we must face our cultural record, and in doing so, we must strive to eradicate bad ideas, not erase history. Baldwin again, to accept one's past, one's history, is not the same thing as drowning in it. It is learning how to use it. An invented past can never be used. It cracks and crumbles under the pressures of life like clay in a season of drought. And Churchill, a nation that forgets its past, has no future. I might say, a nation that does not face its history will be imprisoned by that inability. Of course, the necessity of facing our history begs the question of which history. Our dinner conversation pivots to the debate over removing the monuments of our country's framers. Listening to my children grapple with whether or not they should honor Thomas Jefferson or Ben Franklin is both perplexing and amazing. I'm stunned by their Socratic sophistication. But more distressful is the diminishing ability they feel to discuss the messiness publicly without fear of rebuke. Social media seems to have upended the capacity for complicated and nuanced public discourse. Yes, I told my girls, Benjamin Franklin owned two slaves. Thomas Jefferson owned significantly more. Yet both these men signed a parchment on July 4th, 1776, that enshrined the guiding axiom of our nation, all men are created equal. This utter disconnect between their ideals and their behavior is so confounding that it led Baldwin to compose The White Problem in 1964, which posits the following. The people who settled the country had a fatal flaw. They could recognize a man when they saw one. They knew he wasn't anything else but a man. But since they were Christian, and since they had already decided that they came here to establish a free country, the only way to justify the role this chattel was playing in one's life was to say that he was not a man. But if he wasn't, then no crime had been committed. Slavery, our nation's original sin, did not so much emerge from racism, but rather racism emerged as a justification for what should have been the irreconcilable horror of slavery. Of course, the lives of Franklin and Jefferson are as muddled as our country's history, one that continually seeks to be more aligned with its highest spiritual principles, falls short, and yet tries again. Despite owning slaves, by the mid-1770s, Franklin recognized the error of his ways and became a leading abolitionist. He freed his slaves and strongly advocated for the availability of education to all freed slaves. 
And while Jefferson never freed his slaves, he did more than almost any other politician in his generation to stem the expansion and continuation of slavery in America. Two years after the Declaration was ratified, he wrote the Virginia Law banning Virginia from importing slaves, and as president in 1807, he completed the job of abolishing the slave trade from America. As innocently as Lolly posed the question, she suggests a remedy. Instead of tearing down the statues, maybe on the plaques underneath them, they should simply add, and he owns slaves, to all the nice things that are written. Or put up a statue of their slaves next to them, pipes in little Micah. In their guilelessness, they intuit that in order to see our past clearly, we must look at it through a variety of perspectives, not just through the lens of the white narrative. Children seem to have an innate yearning for making things fair. However, it is clear that neither my children nor, candidly, I have been instilled with a deep enough understanding of the parallel narratives of our country and our world. They don't have at their fingertips the names of the hundreds of men and women whose statues could well be erected next to Franklin and Jefferson and Lee and Calhoun and other Confederates. But sitting behind our ready agreement that one of the most important projects of their generation is grappling with our historical wrongs and acceptance that an American Truth and Reconciliation Commission is long past due is a disturbing intellectual and social insecurity. This intensely animated discussion between my girls is a reflection of their profound thirst to have it, and upon further inquiry, it is clear that they feel virtually no freedom to publicly prod at liberal orthodoxy and ask clumsy questions. They even hush their voices around our very private table. Should bad actors be held accountable for their inexcusable behavior? Yes, the rioters at the Capitol should go to prison, as should Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein, Keith Rainier, Dylan Ruth, Adam Lanza, and scores of other criminals. There should be no tolerance for violence or abuse or language that incites it. And the scourge of weaponized misinformation that tribalizes society requires constant attending and sometimes deplatforming. But does canceling people merely for their ideas or policy stances or a tweet that doesn't age well lead to progress? Should we not be expiring terminology instead of people? Should we not be debating ideas instead of debasing fellow humans? Can we refrain from calling people out and, as Justin Michael Williams proffers, call them forward? Respectful confrontation is a reflection of maturity. Now, I reckon that the road to a more equitable society will not be paved with shame. As certainly there is a profound moral inventory that white people must undertake in recognizing the benefits they have accrued over the course of our nation's history. However, the notion that one group of people has a complete monopoly on privilege is itself reflective of privilege. Those who espouse that concept seem unfamiliar with the white single mother working two minimum wage jobs in a boarded-up, opioid-ridden town. From my personal relationships with a number of these women, I can relay that they have very little sense of privilege, 
nor are they remotely guilty for anything their great-grandfather might have or have not done. They are simply scrambling to make ends meet. And if there's one thing they resent, it's being dubbed an ignorant racist, not for any reprehensible act, but merely for their politics. Now, at times, I wonder what I would write in a letter to my 18-year-old DJ self sitting in the booth that day. And then I realize that I don't have to write myself, because there I am, sitting across the dinner table from myself, in the form of my daughters. I might write, if you're going to host a radio show, don't show up so bloody hungover. But, if you accidentally cue up a flaming lump of historical excrement, step up and say, I love this music. It elicits myriad emotions, joy, sorrow, melancholy. It's pregnant with American stories. And listening to it is also agonizing because some of those stories reflect our profoundly racist history. Art is invaluable because it allows us to feel into our collective heartbreak and pain with our gut as well as our head and to help us forge our way toward a more righteous future. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to share your thoughts with me, I am here at Jeff K at onecommune.com.